Welcome to the Golf Social Podcast, where I, Toby Lodi, and Michael Tilcock share the stories of people who love golf so that we can inspire more people to play the game that we love, for better or worse. Please give us a follow on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at Golf Social TV. Welcome back to the Golf Social Podcast with me, Michael Tilcock, and without my normal co-host, Toby Lodi, who is living it up this week in Brazil. However, we do have a fantastic guest this week. Freddie MacArthur. Freddie is an elite amateur golfer playing off a handicap of plus four and has been ranked as low as 778th in the world amateur golf rankings. Some of his career highlights include coming second in the English under 25 championship and making it to final open qualifying at Hollenwell playing rounds with European tour winners Robert Rock and Oliver Wilson. I first came across Freddie on TikTok at Mac underscore golf where he mixes great golf with humor to great effect, and also some banging tunes. Today, we hope to draw out some insight as to what it's like to be an elite amateur golfer in 2023, and to discuss our question of the week, how to deal with first tee nerves, where Freddie will talk us through some of the techniques he uses, and also maybe some of the rounds on the first tee where he's been more, uh, more nervous than others. So Freddie, firstly, welcome to the Golf Social Podcast. We're thrilled to have you. How are you doing? How was Portugal? Yeah, Portugal was good. Uh, thanks for having me as well. But um, yeah, unfortunately, fresh off a missed cut. So um, hopefully we can do better next time. And and what? so what What event were you playing in over there? So I was playing the Portuguese Am. Um, so it's quite a big event on the amateur um, schedule. So it's the first one to kick things off. Uh, so I didn't really know what to expect because the weather's not been great. The courses have been a little bit um, on the ropey side, to say the least. But um, it was nice to get out there. <laughs> it was nice to get out there a little bit early and um, get some good prep in for the event. And although it was a mixed bag, there, there were definitely some signs that there's maybe a little bit of improvement um, from the last season. So we'll just have to sort of see how it goes. And um, yeah, it was good to, good to be back out there. All right. Well, I'm very sorry we've caught you on the back of a miscut because I can imagine that that can be uh, a bit of a bummer, you know, first event of the season. But we're going to sort of dig into that a little bit later, hear about your amateur career and how it's going and some of your ambitions for the future. But as as is customary on the Golf Social podcast, we're going to kick off with our par breakers, which are some quick fire questions. So you can have 60 seconds to answer these as fast as you can. Are you ready? Yeah. All good. <laughs> All right. First question is, what is your home club? Uh, Ullersthorpe Court Golf Club in Leicestershire. What's your handicap? Uh, plus four. What is your post-round tipple? Probably just like a lemonade and lemonade and lime cordial, to be fair. I'm not a massive drinker. so. Oh, yeah. What is your favourite golf course? Probably the old course at Sunningdale. Ooh, that's a classic. I'm yet to play it, but it's on my list. What is your bucket list golf course you'd like to play? It's got to be Augusta, hasn't it? Augusta National. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't say Augusta's just lying, we should take that question off. Um, <laughs> and name your perfect four ball. Probably Tiger, Ricky Fowler, myself, Jordan Speed. So how old are you? So I'm, cut, I'm actually 24. So I'm a little bit older compared to maybe a lot of the lads that are playing the amateur stuff. The reason I ask is, so Ricky Fowler, 
when you were kind of growing up, like as a teenage golfer, was he one of the bigger guys? Yeah, I feel like he was. So I was probably when he was like first coming out, I'm guessing I was probably 12 or 13. Um, and he was all, he was like a little bit different. He wore a lot of funky, a lot of funky clothes. Um, he was quite cool. He liked the dirt biking and all the rest of it. And he was a little bit different. Um, but on top of that, he's always been a good role model for everyone, I feel. Um, and he's always been that kind of cool, cheeky chap, but always been a gentleman as well. And I, I think that's something that um, I definitely admired. But also, he had quite a lot of flair on the course. And um, he definitely Ooh, did yeah. things his own way. He did things his own way as well. So I feel like that's kind of why uh, I was a big foul obviously tiger's the big one but i was a big fowler fan sort of growing up yes i thing i well thing i love about ricky fowler technically is his putting stroke is just gorgeous like it's so mm. free-flowing i feel like i i know he struggled with his putting but from an aesthetic point of view it looks great uh and then jordan from like 20 feet and in he's just absolutely sort of deadly apart from when he gets to about two or three feet and then I start to get a bit nervous because he seems to have lost that short putting maybe a little bit mm. um but top uh, it's a it's a very nice little four ball all right so par breakers I think you shot comfortably under par there so well done Freddie um and now we're going to learn a little bit more about you so I gave a little bit of an intro firstly Correct me if I got anything wrong there, um, but tell us a little bit about you, um, what you've been up to over the last few years. You know, are you a full-time golfer? What are your ambitions in the game? How you got into the how you got into the game of golf in the first place? Well, let's start with that and see where it takes us. Yeah, so um, growing up, I was always like a decent player, I'd say. Um, at sort of a county level, I was generally one of the best players in my age group, so... I was okay, like nothing outrageous, um, but I've always just loved the game. I've always always had a passion. I feel like I almost play more than near enough everyone else or practice as much or if not more than everyone else as well. Um, but I was never, growing up, I was never that guy that was winning all of the board, the national boys' competitions or, like don't get me wrong, I was competing in some of them and I was doing okay, but I was never one of the better players. Um, I would say partly because I, I feel like I had good instruction, but I was I just I was just happy to be out there playing and doing things kind of my own way a little bit. Um, but yeah, so when I was about eighteen, I think I was off maybe scratch or one. So it was like a decent a decent level, but like I said before, nothing out of the ordinary. And then I went to the University of Leicester to do my undergraduate in psychology. Um, so I went there, play, played in, on the golf team and sort of slowly but surely improved. Like I've always kind of followed this gradual progression with my golf. By my third year, I ended up on like a bit of a scholarship. So they helped me out with things like strength and conditioning and got a little bit of funding. So I feel like by the end, I think by the end of uni, I was maybe like a 1.6 or something on the Congo system. So I was maybe like maybe improved by a couple of shots in my time at Leicester. And then I ended up doing a master's at Stirling, the University of Stirling in Scotland. So I did that in the psychology. So the, the degree was called the psychology of sport so there's some real good players some real good golfers up at sterling um it's a real sporting university 
I feel like up there I learned quite a bit about what I wasn't doing compared to what everyone else those guys who are maybe slightly better than me were doing. Uh, so I feel like although I, I was only there for a year, and I didn't necessarily play quite as much golf as what I would have liked. I feel like I learned a great deal about myself and also how to get better at the game. So I graduated from there. I think I got in my degree, in my master's degree. Could I just pause you there? Because you said something yeah. really interesting, which is you, you feel like you learned how to, go, how to get better from yeah. those people around you at Sterling. Can you just go go into that? What do you mean by that? Mm. Like what sort of things? I feel like I didn't necessarily know what the better players were doing with their time. For example, how they would necessarily how they would plan their day, how they would plan their practice, um, how they would be doing golf specific workouts, how like I feel like I didn't really have a structured practice schedule. I, I would just go to the club and kind of hit balls. If it's going left, try and straighten out my ball flight or whatever. I wouldn't necessarily have a plan of action before I went into the session, um, which now I felt like I think, how did I ever reach a le- like a decent <laughs> level doing that? But but yeah, just things like that. And like even putting, like putting, like I would just hit, putts around the green or like for a couple of hours there wouldn't be any structure I wouldn't be working on my start line my green reading my pace like my pre-shot routine anything like that but small nuggets like that in each area of the game I think I think really helps out and also um my dissertation supervisor was a chap called Dr John Mathers and I feel like in terms of like mental skills just like small anecdotes on the course I feel like he really helped me out so yeah that's kind of what I meant by that but and also um the coach up there was someone called Dean Robertson who was out on tour I think in the 90s but um the performance practice the some of the drills that he sort of passed on I, I think were kind of invaluable and um me maybe again like progressing and reaching a a little bit of a different level compared to what I was before I went to Sterling. So yeah. And and that Dr. John Mabers was he a psych a sports psychologist or was he more of a golf background or both? So he so he actually did have a golf background. He was I think he he's maybe won like the Scottish seniors amateur championship, but he is he's a really, a really renowned sports psychologist, psychologist in Scotland, and um, his work with the likes of Jamie Murray, a few tennis players up there, a few swimmers. I think maybe Duncan Scott, maybe wrong on that, but um, yeah, he's worked with some high-level athletes in his time. So to sort of learn off people like that is um, quite inspiring. So you got your, you were saying just before I interrupted you, um, you got your merit was that in your masters and, and and sterling where is sterling in in scotland and i know it generally by the golf courses but like mm. where is it so it's quite it in rough terms it's in between st andrews and edinburgh so it's kind of in the on the east oh, side okay. uh it, it's probably about 20 minutes from glen eagles uh if that helps out a little bit but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so it's a bit yeah. inland yeah, it's a little bit inland. It's pro- I'd probably say it's fifty minutes from St Andrews an hour. So yeah. Okay, so you presumably you finish your masters. Had you then 
learning all this new stuff from these better better players or or guys who maybe practiced a bit better than you had did did that have an impact on your handicap and what 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 did you do after your masters uh so after so i feel like the covid that was kind of during the covid era um so during that period i was like i want to kind of play at least like a year or two of full-time amateur golf um just because one, like I love it, and two, because like I'm young and I wouldn't be able to have this chance again to sort of like be able to get as good as possible. Um, then I feel like we had like a year or a year and a half towards the end of the COVID where um, I didn't really get much of a chance because a lot of the events weren't on. Um, so I was just kind of doing bits and bobs there. But since then I've just been playing near enough full time and yeah, it's just been trying to get better in, in, in lots of different areas, whether it's trying to hit the ball a little bit further or tidy up my short game or strengthen my ball flight. Um, yeah. So I've, I've been playing in a, sort of a full schedule of all the amateur events. So it's been quite fun. So how are you sort of funding that? Cause I, I know it can be expensive traveling to these events have you got some helpful parents? So you've got any backers? Are you able to get sponsorship? What does that look like for an amateur at the moment? So for me, it's primarily my parents. Like there's a couple of quite generous people about, but um, yeah, primarily parents, which is like, I'm so grateful for their support and their help. Um, obviously, I know like, I'm not going to take the mick. I know it's not going to be forever, but this experience is something that... Um, I've really enjoyed so far and um yeah hopefully I can make the most of it and win some trophies absolutely that's awesome I love I love that your immediate ambition is to to find out how good you can get basically yeah um yeah. and like within that do you have ambitions of getting on the European tour becoming a professional what where's your head at in that space I think for me, like, I'm quite a realist. I'm a very optimistic guy, but I'm a very realistic guy. I think anyone playing in sort of the big amateur events who can kind of play a little bit would be lying if they were saying that they wouldn't want to turn pro at some point. But for me, like, I feel like there's levels. And if you're not quite at that standard, like, you, you should probably... You just you just need to be realistic, really. Like for me, I feel like I know that I'm not quite at that level, so there's no point in turning pro prematurely and kind of end up not enjoying the game quite as much. So I would love to, but at the same time, I think there's a long way to go if that was ever to happen. You're kind of like protecting yourself in a way by saying your ambition is to see how good you can get, and if that yeah. happened to be the level that would take you up into the sort of pro standard then you wouldn't say no sort of thing yeah i wouldn't say like i wouldn't say it's protecting myself but i would i would say i would definitely say that kind of i do really enjoy the amateur stuff and the whole point was to kind of try and almost like make a little bit of a legacy for myself just so that i can almost say yeah i managed to achieve that um but like i say like if you end up getting to a really good standard like you wouldn't say no to like ending up on tour would you so yeah that's kind of the, the mindset <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but 
but yeah. it's never been a problem for me so no no i don't think I, like it's, it's not been for me either but... um so is this your is this is 2023 going to be your essentially your second full year doing a full pretty, amateur schedule then post COVID? yeah yeah pretty much i can't there was like a, a bit of a half year and then last year i, I played nearly a full sh- pretty much a full schedule the only one I, I didn't play in was british am um just because the way that the timings worked out with my world ranking so you need to play a minimum of eight events and i hadn't had i'd only had seven so my ranking wasn't good enough but then by the time i had eight it would have been good enough but um i didn't play that one right but uh hopefully this year i'll i'll play that and play near enough everything hopefully i guess how good do you have to be to get into these elite amateur events how does that work how do they decide it is it off the world rankings yeah i feel like um a lot of them are on handicap but then the ones that you really want to be in are on world ranking it's normally top thousand uh for a lot of the things so like portugal was 1500 i think spanish am was 1300 or something then British Arm is normally top thousand, for example. So, um, but it's it's hard to even get a world amateur golf ranking. A lot of people struggle to meet the minimum requirement that you've 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 got to win like a kind of an elite amateur event in England or come second normally. So it's it's hard to even get on the system. So I know a thousand or whatever doesn't sound that great, but worldwide, like a thousand, you've probably well, you've probably you've probably had a lot of top fives and tens sort of in events in this country, so it it's a tough old system. But um, yeah, it, you just can't take your eye off the ball. And if I wasn't playing full time, it, it would near enough be impossible to get into a lot of these events. I think. So I I had a look at your results because um, you can Google anything these days, yeah. um, and I saw that you had that second. Uh, place finish in the English under 25 last year which is pretty yeah. good and I think that was only one shot off off the victory mm. um are there any other because obviously I don't know the relative strength of these events but is that kind of like a career highlight or where uh, would you place some of the other events in that kind of scale it, it's tough to say because like there's a there's an event called the Hampshire Salva which is like it doesn't sound nearly as good, but I feel like the field strength was almost better than the English under 25s. And like, um, there's quite a few events where, like, say, for example, I was to play Brit- Brit- British Am and make the cut. That's almost like a bigger achievement than winning like a smaller event, just because of how strong the fields are. Like, some of these boys, like, in those real big events, like, genuinely are like, potentially going to walk out onto some sort of tour whether that's web.com pga tour or dp world tour um like some of these boys can really play so it's hard it's hard to compare different events to be honest but um sometimes a top 10 and like a so i went to holland and like there were quite a few good good players and that was in the dutch amateur i think i came 10th in that and like although it wasn't unreal you did i can see it i've got it (laughs) Yeah, although it wasn't unreal, I feel like it that was almost better than the runner-ups in the other two events. So it's 
it's hard to compare, but I feel like it's definitely that's definitely up there, that runner up finish. So so when you're playing with these these top amateur guys, um or even people who you maybe see as peers, like can you see the areas of your game that you need to improve in in order to go up a notch in the amateur game and then to go up a notch in, you know, potentially the professional game? What 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 do you have to do, do you think, to to move up to that next level? Definitely. I like there's a lot of when I watch and play with some of these lads, honestly, like it's some of the stuff they do is ridiculous. Like there was one chap that I played with in Holland in a different event. This was maybe two or three years ago. It was this Spanish chap and um it short sided himself. He was on like a a sandy, muddy patch. He was short sided. The green was raised and he's managed to hit this shot. I think it was downwind as well. He's managed to hit this shot and it's pitched like five foot past the flag and ripped back and lipped out. And I was just thinking like, (laughs) if I was in that exact spot, like my short game isn't a strength, but if I was in that exact spot, I'm not even sure I would have got down in three or four shots and he's nearly, he's nearly held it. Um, But I think for me as well, like I'm not the longest, but I'm, generally when when I'm playing okay a, a lot straighter than everyone else um so I feel like there's stuff that I think is good enough but then there's stuff that I think is way off the pace so um it's just about working on your weaknesses as much as you possibly can and understanding why they're not as good as everyone else um and going to town from there but you also need to maintain your strengths because you neglect them, then that's when things start to really go wrong. So, so what are your strengths other than your sort of driving accuracy? I guess I, I generally just hit the ball really straight. I don't necessarily strike it as good as everyone else. Um, and when the putter does get hot, it's like really, really hot. Um, but we may come on to it. There, are, there are times when things do go wrong and. Um, your strengths aren't, aren't quite as good as what they normally are. But generally, when I've had my lowest scores, I've just hit the ball really straight. I've putted for fun. So, um, yeah, that's normally the general strength for me. And because obviously you've got this background in sports psychology, which, you know, not everyone will have or very few people will have. Do you think that is an advantage? Definitely. I, th- I think it, it's almost, especially in the amateur game, I think there's a lot of very, very talented people that aren't very good at controlling their emotions. They do, they're not necessarily giving themselves the the best shot of performing as well as they can. Whereas I feel like for me, I'm generally when I go out with the pre-shot routine that is pre-planned that I regularly update, um, just being able to keep on top of my emotions, um, just small things like that, the tournament prep as well. I, I feel like those things definitely give me a little bit of an advantage over people in the amateur game. Um, I'm sure there's some in the pro game as well where I feel like I'd maybe gain something. Um, and that just makes me feel maybe a little bit better on the first tee and gives me a little bit of a boost, I think. Well, that's going to be very handy when we discuss how to deal with first tee nerves later. What about the TikTok? Yeah, so it's quite... I can't really remember when I first started my TikTok account, but when I first started it, I thought 
I, I think it's more that I saw other people posting stuff and I thought they're doing that like surely I if they if they can post that why can't I if that kind of makes sense like decent players who are were playing in similar yeah. events to me were, were, were posting stuff which looked quite good and I thought like I could do that and then all of a sudden I thought it would also be a good chance to maybe like get myself get my name out there obviously the, the most important thing is playing good in the events but I think it's a it's definitely a good tool to get your name out there maybe attract a little bit of sponsorship a little bit of backing but I think I've I soon realized that yeah you can post like some good content but the, the most important thing is definitely playing well if, if you want to get support and sponsorship it's only really the people that have got thousands and thousands of followers that are really getting any meaningful support backing but I do love it and it's a it is a great bit of fun um but I do you do need to be a little bit careful because it does take a it does kind of take up a little bit of time so um when I'm planning my day like there's no room for making a video for an hour and a half or whatever so I think over the winter months it's like a a great way of like filling in a little bit of time but in the summer it, it becomes you almost need to limit that TikTok time, I think. <laughs> I did notice uh, around the open, and I gather when you probably, it was the busiest part of the year, it's spring, summer sort of thing, you you went, you were suddenly missing from TikTok, and I thought, oh, Freddie's knuckling down with his golf, I think. So when we were, you were sort of introducing yourself, you mentioned that you were, I think you were around scratch plus one at 18. So you, you weren't mega low, I guess, considering the standard you are now. You also alluded to the fact that you did used to practice more than most people, even if you weren't weren't maybe using that time the most efficiently in your younger years. So I'm interested in your kind of stance on talent versus hard work and practicing golf, just general views, players you've seen and from your own point of view, what do you think about that kind of spectrum, talent and hard work? it's a tough one isn't it because I feel like there's a lot of different a lot of different individuals that play golf and there's a lot of different ways to play golf as well but something that I have noticed is that the guys that have had good instruction and have maybe listened and worked really hard from when they were at a very young age tend to be the ones that have the better technique and people would consider them talented even though that all they've actually done is just worked hard from a young age and like got all the fundamentals right um, from when they're young, from when they're younger. So they've not really got into many bad habits. Um, but there are some people that work extremely hard, and, and I feel like almost like me a little bit. Um, you can you can definitely improve if you work hard on the right things, but it's just maybe a little bit harder because. You've maybe spent thousands and thousands of reps doing something that isn't necessarily good. So to then change that is then becomes very difficult. It's not impossible, but it does become difficult. Um, So I don't think there is something called, I don't think talent necessarily exists. I just think that the people that have done the right things for for the whole of their life tend to be the ones that are labeled as talented. Um, that's just my opinion on it. But So I'll give you my opinion, right? Yeah. Um, 
because this topic just generally fascinates me. But my, my point of view is that I think there are super talented people and us, there are super hardworking people. And like that hard work itself and that discipline is a skill and it's within the brain. It's like something you've kind of got or you don't, um, that kind of nature to, to want to do something over and over again. Right. And then when you get a combination of those two things, that talent and that super hard work, then you get Tiger Woods. Basically, if you get the top talent and you get the top hard work for me, that's Tiger Woods. And, and I would say someone like Rory McIlroy is top talent and he's got amazing work ethic. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think he's got Tiger Woods work ethic. And that's where he's like going to be a legend of the game, but he's not going to be Tiger Woods. Um, and to be honest, this is totally unscientific why I think this. It's mostly based on my younger brother, right? So my younger brother is was a really good cricketer. He actually studied sports psychology like you, um, but he, he played kind of second 11 cricket for Knots, was very talented. But I watched my younger brother at the age of like three in our back garden just smack like wind balls for six when we were playing cricket in the garden. Mm. He'd never had a lesson. He'd never had coaching. I don't know. You could say maybe there was some observed thing, but he just had a talent for it and Mm. he's always had it. So I've always been quite biased on that. It's not based on any like science. You know, I've read books and stuff like bounce, which is more on the the hard work side of the fence and the 10,000 hours thing. Um, But I find it really interesting that you, are more on the hard work side of things and more on the, if people have been instructed well, then it appears like they are more talented sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, it's a tough one. I feel like there's always, there's definitely that debate there, but that's just based on what I've seen. I'm sure everyone's seen something slightly different, which kind of forms their opinion. And I think even if you were to base it on science, I don't think science would necessarily come to a conclusive answers to whether hard work or talent is more important. So I think the main thing for anyone is just work as hard as you can. If you're not talented, the glass ceiling might not be as high. If you are talented, you'll get to that glass ceiling if you work hard. So just work hard, whether you're talented or not. So if there's a parent with a 12-year-old kid who's on this kind of, it's a promising young golfer, and the advice you always get from everything you hear on this topic is, oh, just tell them to enjoy it, have fun. It's got to be coming from them, right? Which I agree with. But a more specific question, from your point of view, as someone who's been on this path of an elite golfer from presumably a a young age, right? Um, What is good instruction? Like, what should that parent be looking for in terms of good instruction to give their kid the best chance in the game of golf? I think it's it's primarily access to good coaching. I I think the average PGA professional like is great, but not every PGA professional is necessarily equipped to be able to create someone that is capable of being in the top. 10 in the world I think um, if you give someone really good coaching that that's kind of all they need as long as they love the game and they're prepared to work on it um, but from my like if I was to t- tell a parent as to what it say they don't necessarily have access to that coaching I would tell them to 
try and hit the ball as hard as they can from a young age because I think speed is is actually something that is becoming you almost need to have it if you want to be successful in the game now like I think for me some I grew up on quite tight short golf courses where speed isn't necessarily something that's important but you soon realize that when you play proper courses that are 7,300 yards and what have you you actually have to hit proper shots you need to carry bunkers that are really quite quite far to carry so like I think there's that and also you can't cut corners as well if your home course is you can hit a bump and run or you can putt from everywhere like you still need to be able to practice shots that you might not might not face at your home club. So maybe going out and playing as many courses as, as courses as you can is like a pretty good idea, I suppose. But um, yeah, that that's the sort of advice that I'd be given. That's that's I think that sounds like really good advice. And in terms of like accessing that elite coaching, how does how does someone find the best elite coaches? That's a tough question. I I think the bit the big issue is if you don't necessarily have a lot of money you don't have the funding it's very very difficult to get into golf and something that I've noticed is that the people that are in the national squads generally not all the time but generally are the ones that have had parents that have maybe spent thousands and thousands of pounds in getting them that elite coaching um, right from the start because like it's not cheap. Um, I mean, there's some lads gen- gen- genuinely like they have 20 hours of coaching in, in a month, which is ridiculous. Um, but I think that's that's all you can really do. Like you, you can't, golf isn't a cheap sport. You can't necessarily not have the right equipment. You can't necessarily be playing on a, poor golf course that's always not in great condition I I feel like you need to always have the best opportunities but um it's a gamble because even if you have that it doesn't necessarily mean that the kid's gonna want to play and gonna gonna enjoy it and improve so it's a tough one I'd maybe uh recommend playing a different sport (laughs) (laughs) uh it's better than cricket I can tell you that I used to play a fair bit of cricket. Oh, you did? Were you a batsman? Uh, I was. So I was saying, the reason I say it's better than cricket is because if you're a batsman and you play cricket on a Saturday morning and you've got all psyched up for this game that you've waited all week for and mm. then you get a golden duck, oh, that's a horrible... I mean, don't get me wrong. The standard of talk tour pro golf is way higher than the standard of professional cricket like there's no doubt about that it's just more money it's a global mm. sport there's no doubt that it's harder to become a, a tour pro than it is a pro- professional cricketer in my mind but as a mentally destructive sport cricket is it's got to be right up there i mean golf is probably right up there as well because you can be seven under and have a triple bogey on the last and you know chuck it all away but no i'd, I'd agree like i feel like with like you say with county cricket as well like there's almost there's definitely not as many people that play cricket as as what they play golf and it's kind of a lot harder to practice cricket than golf as well i think that might have something to do with it but 
yeah, like you say, for a batsman, if if you go in and you just keep getting ducks, it's obviously not the best because you don't get a second chance. At, at least with golf, like although it, it, it's not the best, it's probably a close second. Like you do get another hole to at least try and get things back, but it is. Yeah, it can be quite frustrating. So basically, the advice to parents, you gave some great advice, but also you need loads of money. <laughs> Otherwise, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much. It it's not it's not an easy sport to get into, is it? I mean, as well as well, like you just need patience, and I feel like most kids don't have that. Um so it it's tough. It, it is it is not not an easy game to get good at. I mean, if you look at tour pros and especially ones who everyone kind of knows the story of, your Tigers, your Rory's, there's always a story. And Ricky Fowler is a great example of this with his with his grandpa. There's always a story of one person at least in the family who was semi dedicated to them mm. being a professional golfer. Even if even in McElroy's case, if it was just dropping him off at the the golf course every day with Tiger Woods it was much more involved but you rarely get someone who's who's met who's made it to that elite level who didn't have like an elite parent sort of thing in the context of helping them become a pro golfer what what's uh the, the role of your parents been in your sort of golf golfing life so i feel like my parents have always been really supportive like whatever i've done but they've not they've not got a golf background or anything um and that might have been one of the reasons as to why i'd go up to the club and i would just do what i fancied and what i found fun and i don't like i don't regret i don't think it's a bad thing i think it's almost like as to why i love the game as much as i do but i do feel like i maybe would have got to a slightly better level earlier um if i did things a little bit differently and on the technique side since you know since you went from being 18 scratch to 24 you're off plus four and and you are an elite amateur golfer technically what's changed in your game since then you know has your has your swing become flatter or steeper like you're moving your body differently what's been the change to gain those four shots which are very hard shots to gain I i think one of the things is that I used to kind of just tap it round. Like, generally, I had no... Like, I still don't have loads of speed, but I had no speed whatsoever. Like, I didn't realise how... We were kind of in a... When I was 14, 15, we didn't necessarily have Trapman or Quad. It was kind of just coming in at that point. So, and even on TV, you couldn't see 175 ball speed by whoever's playing. So, you didn't necessarily know how how far people were actually hitting the ball if you play at a county level on a short course where the longer hitters might just be hitting an iron off the tee and like it might be rock hard and you can hit a driver 300 yards even though you've only flown it 220 like you don't realize how far people are actually hitting the ball um and then kind of trap man came in and I, I went on that and then you could see tour averages and it's like I'm carrying it like 60 yards short short of the tour average at 18 years old. And there's lads in America that seriously wow. are carrying it like over 300 yards. So um I've always I've always kind of hit it straight but kind of done it my own way. But um 
there's been there's been a few swing changes to help me um gain a little bit of speed uh gym work as well like i'm not the biggest but i feel like when i was 18 i was six foot two but i was probably only 68 kilos i was like really really thin um so i couldn't really generate a whole lot of speed so i feel like gym work a few swing changes which is kind of tied to my dispersion down a little bit whilst gaining a little bit of speed and um all of a sudden you're going from thinking that level par is a good score around like a normal course to kind of going out there with that almost a little bit of arrogance like on a regular golf course that I would probably go out there and and shoot four five six under whatever it may be on on the day depending on the conditions but um yeah I, I feel like speed was definitely the main thing and still is like I still need to gain speed but but yeah so because you are a big lad like you're a tall lad are you, are you mm. still six foot two or are you taller than that that's about six two six three something like that yeah and and what's your driver swing speed and, and ball speed now so i'm probably swinging it about if i'm moving well and it, we're not in minus five or whatever it was a few weeks ago I'd probably <laughs> say like 110 as an average which which is that like that's obviously like at a club and county level, that's quite quick. But in terms of PGA Tour, mm. that's probably still four or five mile an hour shy of like the minimum requirement. Um, yeah. So yeah, things like like speed sticks, hitting the ball as, as hard as you can, like in the net, um, having the intent on the golf course uh, are all things that you need to do if you want to gain a little bit of speed. I mean, you, you look at people like Matt Fitzpatrick, who incidentally I watched win the British boys at Hollandwell when he was mm. 16. Um, and John Rahm was also in that field, but he didn't make it to even the match play in that. And Matt Fitzpatrick was tiny when he was 16, but he's still, when I saw him hit his driver, I was like, you're, you're probably carrying it to, I reckon he was probably carrying it at least 275 when he was 16. I was mm. like, it's not short, especially for his yeah. size. And now you see that he's put he's put on that extra twenty five yards. He gets up to sort of one twenty on a on a fast swing, and suddenly his game has just gone to a different level because he's closer to the green. Basically, mm. like it's, it does make such a big difference, doesn't it? If you can get that extra five miles an hour, then it's going to be transformational for your game. If you can keep it, you know, straightish. Mm, definitely, I I I think just but like the, the stats don't necessarily lie do they i mean if you're close to the hole providing that you're not you can play golf like you're going to shoot a lower score like the, the stats don't lie on that but um yeah fitz he, he he's turned his game completely around he like he was always a great player but he's kind of mixed that finesse that he's always had that great short game and putting now with being accurate and long off the tee, like he doesn't have any weaknesses in his game, does he anymore? So, um, yeah, he's definitely going to bag a few more tournaments, I think. Okay, interesting. And when you say you've made swing changes, like literally, what is an example of a swing change you've you've made to get some more speed? Like I was always very stack and tilt, so I was always on my left side. My head yeah, always stayed on my left side, um, and I kind of hit like a like a squirty block fade which like so the whole so there was no speed in there and also like the spin was high the whole the whole thing was like 
just tap it like it was so so short and um <laughs> so bad like but when you think about it if you're playing a super short golf course where you need to get it in play it's like it was perfect and that it's because I grew up on those kind of courses where I've, de- I've clearly developed a technique um, that where I can score on sort of the courses near me. And do you have a coach? I do. He's called Alistair Davis. So he's based at the Forest of Arden. Um, he is a good coach. Um, and for putting, I'm seeing a guy called Nick Soto, who um, he is oh, the I've England... Heard of him. England men's coach and he works with a few lady tour pro I think he works with Charlie Hall so he's a good coach yeah that's where I've seen him well it'd be really interesting to see you know what impact it has on your game and if I look at your results this summer and you're suddenly uh ripping it up I'm gonna be like oh he's found that extra five miles an hour or Mm. (laughs) or whatever it may be um the thing is when you've not had speed then when you get kind of in, into your 20s, I definitely think it's maybe harder to gain speed than when, if I was still developing when I was younger. Um, that was something I was going to say, like for someone that, for a parent trying to coach a 12-year-old or get them into the game, like play loads of sports because um, if you're playing basketball and baseball, you're going to develop those sort of fast twitch fibres that are required. Um, like I used to, I used to play cricket, which is like, it's okay. Um, but I did a lot of cross country and I didn't necessarily, I wasn't great <laughs> with my nutrition. Uh, so the whole thing, like when I look back, it was just a nightmare for getting good at golf. But um, we live in like... Anti-golf. Definitely. <laughs> oh dear. Well, but but that potentially means you you do have some unrealized potential, right? Hmm. Exactly. So I have actually watched you play golf. Um, that was at Hollandwell in final open qualifying. It's obviously a great achievement to even get to final open qualifying. So you can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what regional qualifying was like, where you played, like how big of a deal was it for you to qualify and your experience of final qualifying as well? So yeah, so I qualified. I, I've actually qualified... This was the second time I've qualified for final stage. You go through a regional stage. Um, I think there's maybe 12 sites across the country or across the UK. Um, and then I think the top eight or 10 players from each venue around that uh, then go into the final stage. So I, I think regional stage is mainly PGA professionals, um, amateurs and I think there's a few people that have maybe been on the challenge tour that have to go through the regional stage as well. Um, so it's not easy to get through, but um, so I got through that. I think I shot, I think I shot about four under may, may not be right, but I shot four under at Northampton County, which it was pretty good. I, again, I was like, just hit, I wasn't hit striking it great on the day, but I was hitting it straight and I was, I was putting really well and, Generally, that's a, a recipe for uh, shooting a decent score. Well, I, I find for me that's a, a good way of shooting a good score. Um, and then, obviously, we got to Hollingwell in the final stage, which didn't quite go as well. Um, so I got drawn with Oliver Wilson, who I think he's played a Ryder Cup before, maybe. 
and Robert Rock, who he's mm-hmm. done quite a lot in the game. I think he did he beat he might have beaten Tiger Woods in a tour event at some point. So he did. He's yeah, he's he's won some bits and bobs in his time. Um so yeah, it was quite an overwhelming experience to be honest. I think I ended up shooting a pair of eighties or eighty one or eighty two or something, which was tough to take. Um but when I look when I look back I I can kinda get it. Like the court it's not an easy course. I wasn't I think every part of my game was maybe below the standard that it had been throughout the season and the amateur events. But I think it the the, the challenge wasn't necessarily like an ability thing. I think yeah, the pl- the standard was super high and I was maybe a little bit out of my depth, but I think the biggest issue was mentally being ready for that. Like, I, I don't think I mentally prepared well enough for that event. I kind of just showed up as if it was any other event and did all of the preparation, the physical preparation to each part element of the game, but maybe didn't necessarily think, well, this is going to be a big thing. Like, I'm really going to have to work hard on my pre-shot routine. I'm going to some, I'm going to have to somehow find a way to be able to replicate the conditions that I may face out on the course during the event. I didn't necessarily do that. Um, and it definitely ended up catching up with me. Uh, but yeah, it was a tough day. I set some context for the listeners, which is I think there were only, it was a really tough day weather-wise. There was about a 20 mile an hour wind blowing at least. And I think three or four players were under par only after two rounds. So shoot like, there were ser- there were European tour players who were shooting 78 79 this was that is that was not a terrible score on those days mm. um that's for sure but i'm interested when you say you didn't prepare well enough mentally if you were in that situation again and hopefully you will be this summer i would imagine how how would you actually prepare i think i would definitely go down more of a performance route I wouldn't necessarily. I, I would probably do a little bit of maintenance, a little bit of prep to each part of the game, and just go to town on performance. I'd try and contact as many people as I possibly could to do as many money matches as possible prior to the event. Like anything that I could possibly do to get myself feeling a little bit of pressure, even if it's like playing with a friend and say say to him, "Okay, if you beat me." you're going to get a hundred pounds or something, which is like a meaningful, like a really meaningful amount of money just to be able to like replicate some kind of pressure. It's like, so I feel like the first team will go over that, but it wasn't, that wasn't necessarily the issue. It was like the whole round, like every, like every shot I faced, I, I feel like I was thinking about what could go wrong rather than, where I wanted the ball to go. I wasn't necessarily following the set process that I would normally follow. Um, and I think part of that was there was a lot of people, like during certain points of the round, there were a lot of people. Um, and that's not necessarily something that I was... Like at these amateur events, if you get to the final of a, ma- a big national match play event, you might have... 40 50 guys walking around but there were times where generally it did it was quite overwhelming um but again like you live and learn but uh 
that's what that's all you can really do to prepare the problem is like i think a lot of the professionals they have to deal with fans and all the rest of it on a weekly basis so 200 fans is nothing to them whereas to me it it it, it was totally an overwhelming experience your wembley it was a little bit um like the amateur stuff is is massive to me but qualifying for the open I, it doesn't really get a whole lot bigger but for someone like me it doesn't get a whole lot bigger than that so um yeah it was tough it was tough because they were easy because you were basically drawn in the marquee group robert rock and oliver wilson were probably the two players who would get the most um fans watching them and there was also andy sullivan there and porteous who plays on the european tour as well but you were you were drawn in the marquee group that was easily 300 people following that group so i can I I felt nervous for like because mm. I'd seen you on TikTok, so I knew who you were, and I was thinking, "Fucking hell, this lad is obviously you're you're a great golfer, but you're a plus four handicap, and you're playing with two genuine tour pro winners um, who've you know played in Ryder Cups, played with Tiger Woods. Like, there's going to be hundreds of people watching. I I was shitting it for you, and like mm. we'll come on to this in the question of the week now, um, but. I just want to ask you one more question. How was it playing with Robert Rock um, and Oliver Wilson? Like, how did they make you feel? Because they must have known that this was a big deal for you. What? How did they kind of engage with you? I feel like they were kind of. They definitely. They weren't necessarily. They were there obviously for themselves, so they weren't like they weren't necessarily going to babysit me. But I feel like it was. They were quite welcoming. Uh, they were pleasant. Um, we all had our own caddies and things like that. So we didn't, I didn't necessarily speak to them a great deal. I had a couple of chats with Ollie a few times, but um, they were nice chaps. I, I think the fans were, the, well, the spectators weren't necessarily that happy because I think Robert Rock maybe wasn't playing, he, he wasn't having his best day and he, he ended up walking off prematurely. But um, which is like, I, I actually, I actually, told, like for me, like I actually totally get it because he's got to get to his next event, um, and if he's definitely not going to qualify for him, like there's kind of no point. But from a, the spectator standpoint, they've maybe taken the, the day off work, um, or they've travelled a long way to see these players. So for him to then walk walk off is it's not great for them. But uh, I did kind of get it a little bit as as that spectator. Um, mm. firstly, it's great that you came to Holland World to do fight. Like we want to have the best pros come and do it. It was our last year, um, doing final qualifying. So I feel, feel like I can speak freely. Like it was great that he came and I know that he was tr- still trying to get into the open and he was going to fly to the play in the Irish open. That's why he walked off after the first round basically. Um, mm. but firstly, he's done it before. So it's it's almost like a he knows he's going to walk off if he's having a shit round, which doesn't feel like the to me that doesn't feel like morally the right thing to do when that means that his group is then going to be a two ball playing mm. in a field of three balls. I guess you'll maybe it's slow anyway, but that feels a bit dodgy to me. Um, and if you're coming into the round knowing that you're going to leave if you have a, a bad round, then it's not really on for me. What I would say is. I watched I watched your group for the for the front first eight I think, and he was an unbelievable ball striker, 
and you say he didn't he didn't have a great round but he was he was going quite steady in the first eight holes and I think he missed one shot he missed the green on eight then his bunker shot he hit the pin from the bunker shot and then he missed his three footer or four footer or whatever mm. for, for his first bogey but before that he hadn't missed a shot and I thought this guy is a serious ball striker and it's good. and it's... Ollie Wilson I couldn't believe how long he was mm. like you can tell he works out but he's not a ma- he's not a huge guy. But I think based on social media and all the rest of it, he's been putting in a lot of work to gain yardage because I think he's quite methodical in the way that he practices and is a big stats guy. So he's not an idiot. He knows that you need to hit the ball really far if you want to compete these days. Um, And yeah, I I think he won recently, but um, there wasn't... He he did shortly after that. He won... Yeah. But I, he wasn't the straightest hitter. And he, he, I think he even told me that he struggles with his driving. But one thing that I did that I did notice and what I did see was he was kind of hitting it a little bit sideways. But because he was hitting it 350 yards sideways, there was always someone to find his ball. He was just wedging it on from like fans <laughs> and, and whatever. And it's just, I, I was kind of like hitting a fairway, leaving myself about... 160 onto these firm greens downwind and didn't have a shot um so yeah it was mm. certainly a different approach and i know he didn't qualify but i, I think his game plan was a, a little bit more soundproof than my one you know i'm sure it was a great experience regardless um and so let's go on to our question of the week now so our question of the week in the golf social podcast is how do you handle first tee nerves and actually, we're going to have a little, hopefully, sort of narration um, from Freddie's experience at the Open because I was actually there and I recorded his first tee shot, which I'll overlay on this when I when I clip the podcast. But if you can get it up on your WhatsApp, okay. And I think you'll have to keep the sound low or off, but I could yeah. probably edit it out, so it'd be fine. If you get that video and then if we pause it at the start and I'll kind of count you in to play it. And if you can literally just in real time kind of talk about what's going through your head here, that okay. I think that'd just be quite fascinating. Three, okay. two, one, play. Okay, so here's me tearing off. A bit of an applause. A bit of an applause. Uh, so yeah, so this is my routine. I'll generally go through three practice swings. Well, only two there, clearly. Uh, but the main thing is having this... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I think the main thing about dealing with first team nerves, obviously there, my routine wasn't necessarily as it should have been. But you need a solid pre-shot routine to back up uh, to back up what you're doing. Um, oh, yeah. Right. There we go. I actually hit a decent one off first. But I think the main thing definitely, is. definitely is to have a good pre-shot routine because when you're under pressure... If you have a good pre-shot routine, that'll carry you through. Like you just need to almost copy the swings that you're doing like beforehand. Um, and like you can sort of see as well that I've during my routine, I look at the target, I kind of think about where the wind's going. I have maybe one key swing thought. Um, and then I pick a target just in front of the ball for alignment. You can kind of see me dragging the shaft down there. Um but yeah, I think having a good pre-shot routine 
following all the cues, like where's the wind going, what sort of lie do you have, um, what sort of like visualizing a, a, a shot shape as well. I think that they're really important things rather than just going up to it and hitting the ball. Um, because when you're nervous, that that's when the routine becomes quite important. I mean, from a, you know, I'm a six handicapper, so obviously we're talking a totally different level. But sometimes when I'm on the first tee and for whatever reason I'm nervous, you know, whereas normally I might have a swing thought that mm. I'm going to do, often I'll find almost my brain goes blank and I just want to get it over with sort of thing. So I make a really rushed, quick swing and I, I can yeah. hit some real horrors on the first tee if I'm not in that mental space when you're standing over that with i don't know was that like a five iron or something i think it was like a three iron. i think it was like into the wind i to be honest with you i just wanted to i just wanted to take a club that was big i didn't want to i didn't want to i didn't want to hit like a four iron well, but this is what i mean i mean what a horrible under that pressure to have like a long iron mm. you know you'd much rather have a driver where you can just you know you can hit it anywhere on the face and it'll get up there sort of thing like I, you actually hit a beautiful kind of, I think you hit a little draw or something. I can't remember if it faded and it just finished just in front of the bunker, which is what mm. you would have been trying to do. Um, like what is actually going through your head as you step to the ball? So on that particular shot, it actually wasn't too bad. So I was, I was just purely focused on what shot shape I'm trying to hit. Even if you don't execute it, just like have a plan of action. Um, and almost like, I think breathing is also quite important. Like if you're kind of like, like just not really breathing, then things happen quite fast. <laughs> um, but if you can kind of take some deep breaths, like I know I'm keep saying it, but the pre-shot routine is like the most important thing. Like expect like things like around the greens as well. Like if you have three practice strokes and then address the ball and ignore the balls there, like you're probably going to hit a better chip for like the average golfer. Um, a lot, a lot of the, the outcome is often dictated by the process, i.e. what you do before you hit the ball. Like the swing is dictated by what you do before you hit the ball. So I think that's the most important thing to, um, to do. But like I say, like my routine wasn't necessarily on point there and it, might not have been on point for the rest of the round as well. So um, that could have been one of the reasons why I struggled a little bit under pressure. Do you find it easier on the long game than the short game under pressure? Definitely. Or vice versa? I, I think... Easier on the long game. Yeah, like on that on that particular day, my putting was like a big letdown because it's normally really good. Um, but I, I generally I find short game shots under pressure are the hardest because you tr you're obviously trying to commit, but it's just so feel based. Whereas if you're hitting a driver, you go through your routine and it all ha like you just commit. You hit that you try and hit the ball as hard as you can, and like that's the best. Generally, when you're trying to like just like ease one down the fairway that's when things can go wrong whereas if you're committing and you're really trying to hit the ball hard like I find that that's a little bit easier but you can't do that with the short game unless you're in a bunker or something you can't hit the ball really hard so I, I, under pressure yeah. the short game is the hard for me personally is definitely the hardest. Yeah, that's really interesting and I think when I overlay that it's going to be 
it's going to be going to be interesting just like getting in the head of someone under probably I don't know is that the most pressure you've ever been under in a round of golf Potent- I, I think for me like it was the whole round every single shot I've never experienced that normally you can be like even in this Portuguese amateur which I've played in recently obviously it was the first time that I had a card in my hand for quite a while so for the first few holes, it was like quite nerve-wracking. But after a few holes, you settle down. But I didn't think I settled down at all. Like from the first hole to the third, sixth hole, I was, I was fright. Like every, my brain was scrambled. Everything it was so tough. Even with the caddy, um, like I, I was struggling to put one foot in front of the in front of the other. I was just trying to not make a fool of myself rather than try to express what yeah. what I've been practicing and what I can do. Uh, and that's not, not mm-hmm. a good spot to be in. Because I, I watched those first eight holes and I thought, you were hitting the ball okay. I imagine for you there were a couple of loose shots. I think maybe it was a loose drive on the second. But actually mm. you were striking the ball fine. Um, but there was one putt on the first. You, you'd hit it to about probably 25 feet. And I think you left your putt maybe four feet short or something like mm. that and I was like that's that's just nerves like yeah that that's avoid avoiding hitting it six feet past and then suddenly you've got a horrible just what you wouldn't want on the first you know if you if you'd knock that putt to a couple of inches you might have suddenly been absolutely fine on the second tee but it it was just I could I could feel the pressure you're under and I the one thing I would say is like I you must I just think you'll have learned so much from that even if you I think you're you're quite conscious about it anyway, maybe more than some people in like thinking about what you would do next time. But there's no substitute for experience in it. Definitely. I'd agree. I would agree. I I think the the one thing that I would say is that you can't you ha you do have to learn. I think the experience and, and having done it is invaluable, but you can't just do the same thing again you almost need to make sure that next time is different and I think that's the main thing for me rather than just keep doing the same thing and expecting the same results you definitely need to learn from these things um but yeah if you learn from it I, I, I well I'm hoping that next time hopefully it'll be better but um we'll have, we'll have to see thanks very much Freddie um so I think that's our question of the week how to handle first team nerves I'm not going to add anything I'm not going to add anything myself. I just try not okay. to. I just try to think of whatever my swing thought is and just like try and make contact and usually pick a driver because it's got the biggest face. But I don't think I'm the best either, to be honest. Um, actually, I think it's got easier since, you know, since the handicap system changed and like you can do a lot more cards. Mm. I think that's helped me just get used to having a card in my hand and not worrying about blocking it 70 yards on the first in a medal. The, the, you know, when you've got one or two medals a month, yeah. there's a lot more pressure sort of thing. But anyway, I think that is everything we were going to cover. Thank you very much, Freddie, for, for being our second ever guest on the Golf Social podcast. Um, before we go, where can people find you, whether it be social media, email, where can they get in touch with you? So I've got a I've got a personal Instagram where I'm starting to put a little bit of golf stuff on there. So that's Freddie underscore MacArthur. Uh, but TikTok, I think, is my main social media for the golf content. Um, I forgot what that is actually. I think it's Freddie Mac Golf. 
so <laughs> Freddie, Freddie Mac think, underscore golf. I th- yeah, if you type that in, you shouldn't be too far away. All right, cool. And you are open to sponsorship. If anyone's listening to this podcast and thinking, Freddie sounds like a smart guy, I'd like to send him some cash to extend his amateur ambitions and career. Are you are you open to sponsorship offers? I wouldn't want to take anyone's money and kind of feel like I've wasted it a little bit. But if there's any companies out there or people that are, are really quite um, wealthy, then that would be nice. <laughs> All right, mate. Um, well, thank you very much. You've been an awesome, an awesome guest. I'm really looking forward to the edit and seeing what I can... Uh, put it down to I think there's some great insights into being an elite amateur golfer in 2023 in there and for our listeners thank you very much for listening we'll catch you next week please follow us at golf social tv on all the social media handles that we have twitter instagram tiktok and even youtube now um and we'll catch you next time please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on cheers guys